Good morning, church. If you were here last week, you know that when Lyle was preaching, he said, oh, well, part of my sermon disappeared. He was using his tablet, so I have paper. <laughs> it will not disappear. And I numbered the pages so that hopefully they won't get out of order and so that things will be as they're supposed to be. Now, if I can just do this and work the PowerPoint all at the same time, we will be good. Um, kind of the thought process for this sermon today started with HGTV. I don't know about you, but I watch a lot of HGTV. I, are there fellow HGTV people out there? Yes, I do see some hands. Mostly all women, I notice. <laughs> so, um, as I said, I watch a lot of HGTV, and I've noticed in the past couple of years that kind of the whole format of their shows are starting to change. I don't know if that's to keep us interested or whatever, but the trend now seems to be people want to, they stay in the home they have, and then they fix it up, renovate it to make it their forever home. So that's what got me thinking today. So the Property Brothers, Jonathan and Drew Scott, they had one of the first of these shows called Property Brothers Forever Home. And then I got to thinking, well, as Christians, we already have a forever home. And our forever home doesn't need any renovating. It's, it's perfect. There's nothing we can do to make it better. Um, Revelations chapter 21 gives us a little bit of a description about what heaven is going to be like. It says it has walls of jasper and streets of pure gold, foundations decorated with every kind of precious stone. The glory of God is its light source. In heaven, there will be no night, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so there is nothing that we as humans can add or subtract to make heaven more perfect than what God has planned. Our concern needs to be working on ourselves to make sure that we get to our forever home, that we get to heaven. Many of us have already taken that most important first step in our journey to heaven. We've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's what everyone must do. There is no other way to heaven and eternal life. You must go through Jesus. Okay, Erica. Oh, there it is. All right, read these verses with me, please. This is like John 3.16, they say, is one of the most beloved verses in the Bible. Can you read this with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Luke affirms this same verse 
that, and same thought that John said in Acts 4.12. He writes, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when Paul and Silas are in jail and the jailer asks them, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So that's what you have to do. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus. So this decision that you make to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior is the most important decision that you will ever make. It's more important than who you marry, how many kids you have, where you live, what your job is. All of those are important, but none of those will affect where you spend eternity. So, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to open your heart. Hear the call of Jesus on your life. Once you've decided to accept him, the next step is really easy. You just pray the, what they call the sinner's prayer. And this is just an example. There's no set words that you have to say. But the basic idea is that you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I believe you died for my sins so I could be forgiven. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for coming into my life. Amen. You say that, those short, powerful words, and if you say them from your heart and you truly believe them, Jesus will come into your life and he will save you and he will be your savior. I think sometimes we try to make it really hard and it's not really hard. You just have to believe in Jesus and accept him as your savior. So parents, if you have junior high and high school kids, have you talked to your kids about this? Have you talked to them about your relationship with Jesus and accepting him as your Lord and Savior? Part of our responsibility as Christian parents is to guide our children in the Christian walk and into a lifelong relationship with Jesus. This is an important conversation that you shouldn't put off, okay? If you aren't sure how to go about this, there um, Jenny, a couple of weeks ago in the midweek message, wrote, a th uh, wrote her article on the Romans road to salvation. There are several verses in the book of Romans that lead you like step by step into what you have to do to be saved. So her um, midweek message is on the church website under reflection. So you can look back. That can be a resource. You can talk to some of us on the ministry team, or you may have other Christians, strong Christians in your life, and they can help you have this conversation with your kids. So if you're in junior high or high school, maybe your mom and dad don't know how to have this conversation with you, but you can start this conversation. You can, if God has been speaking to you and drawing you closer to him, have this conversation with your parents about making a commitment to Christ. So once you accept Jesus, that's just the first step in our walk with the Lord. We can have confidence in our salvation, but we need to continue to grow in him. We need to learn more of him. We need to deepen our relationship with him. Um, the passage from John that was read said that we are to go and bear fruit. It says that we are to live by the Spirit and not just bear fruit, but bear much fruit. But what does that mean? 
It means we need to start living our life differently, living our life for God and not for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You will know someone is a follower of Jesus because they have much fruit. It will mean much fruit because Christ was raised from the dead so that we might receive life, and that life would produce fruit for God. And the fruit is all goodness, all righteousness, all truth, all good works. We are to walk in a manner to bear fruit and put that fruit on display. And that's the proof that we're disciples of Christ. Spirit fruit will lead to spirit action. This idea of bearing fruit takes us to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, Galatians chapter 5. In my Bible, it's entitled, Life by the Spirit. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Oh, there we go. Sorry. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Just a little bit of background for these verses. This, the book of Galatians, when Paul wrote this, the church in Galatia, were they were in the midst of a conflict and they were having a lot of dissension within the church about whether the new Gentile converts had to follow the works or the laws of the Old Testament in order to be saved. Now, the Judaizers were were Jewish people who had become Christians. And they said, those Gentiles, they need to follow Old Testament laws, especially circumcision. So in their mind, it almost seems like they're saying, well, first you have to become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. But Paul wrote this letter to the people of Galatia and said, no, that is not right. He said, a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So he's saying, if all you're worried about is following the law, you're taking away from what Jesus did for you. And it would have been necessary. If the law could have saved you, we didn't even need Jesus. So Paul then goes on to lay out a better way for Christians to live. A life powered by the Holy Spirit that will help us overcome what he calls our flesh or our sinful nature. Our flesh and our spirit will always be in conflict because the desires of the flesh are powered by our sinful nature and are at odds with what the Holy Spirit desires for us. After listing the acts or works of the sinful nature, Paul goes on to list the attributes of a life in the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Now these lists are not complete lists, but they give us a good idea of what Paul is talking about. The fruit of the Spirit is an outward expression of Christ dealing with, with Christ dwelling in us. So read these with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As Eric and I were working on these PowerPoint slides, we both commented that the way we learned these was from the song in the primary department that the kids would sing about the fruit of the spirit. And that we were both, we just both laughed because we both said the exact same thing. That's how I learned the fruit of the spirits by singing that song. So the list he gave us of acts of the sinful nature is a very long list. But then notice there is only one fruit of the spirit. And that fruit of the Spirit is love. We heard, the greatest of these is love. The fruit of the Spirit is like a beautiful bouquet made up of different flowers. But we can't pull individual flowers out of the bouquet, keeping only the ones that are our favorites or the ones that are easy, and then discard the rest. When you live by the Spirit, you live out all the attributes not just the easy ones. The whole, love, is greater than the sum of its individual parts. Every word in those lists is just another expression of love. And we're talking about agape love. It's a sacrificial love that voluntarily suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the benefit in another without expecting anything in return. You heard earlier, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's agape love. That's what Jesus did for us. He laid down his life for us. That's the perfect example of agape love. What was read from 1 Corinthians, that passage, we always use it at weddings, it seems. But it's not talking about romantic love. It's talking about agape love. It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Does it sound familiar? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness. So love is our first fruit, and the next comes joy. We can't create joy, okay? Joy wells up from inside of us. It's not related to our circumstances. That's happiness. Happiness is dependent on good things that happen in your life, how much money you have in your bank account, how much food's in your pantry. That, those things don't determine our joy. Our joy is down in our heart. Remember that song you sang? I have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You know, and you can go on. I have the love of Jesus down in my heart. I have the peace that passeth understanding down in my heart. That's joy. It's in the depths of our soul. It provides us constant satisfaction and contentment. It comes from the confidence that we have in our relationship with Christ, that we are a sinner saved by grace. And we know that Jesus is our daily companion. John MacArthur, who is the pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, says of joy, No one will take your joy away from you because Christ is risen. He is alive and he ever lives. That's what gives everlasting joy. Christ is alive and he has purchased our redemption and an inheritance undefiled, fading not, reserved in heaven for us. We need to celebrate the joy that is a gift from God in order to generate joy. Joy comes from our obedience to God and by following the leading of the Holy Spirit. So love, joy, peace. Peace comes from God. He is the source of our peace. We have that peace that passes understanding, knowing that, as they say in Romans, neither death nor life, neither angel nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will able, be able to separate us from the love of God as it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our peace like our joy, is not dependent on our circumstances because we know that God is always with us no matter what our circumstances, and that's where we get our peace. Our peace comes in knowing we can trust God with our lives. He'll always be working for our good in our lives. If we have peace, we'll be a peacemaker. We will work to bring peace into all parts of our lives and into the lives of others. Next is patience. Patient is not dealing in circumstances. That's long-suffering. Patience is in our relationship with others. You know, we all have those people who we say, try our patience. Okay? Here's what John MacArthur said about patience. Yeah. When you practice patience, you do not retaliate. Whatever was said to you, whatever was done to you, whatever was not done that should have been done, whatever offense was rendered against you, no matter how severe or how serious, 
If you're walking in the spirit, your anger is far away. It is at an almost infinite distance. You are restrained in your anger, restrained from any retaliation. Tolerant might be one way to express it, but that's a little too benign. It means keep your anger far away. That's patience. It's contrary to our human nature. When we are wronged, we want to get angry. We want to strike back. We want to avenge that wrong. And those are not fruit of the spirit attitudes. God has given us the perfect example of patience in that because despite our sin, our rebellion, our turning our backs on him, he never turns his back on us. He continues to love us and care for us no matter what. Numbers 14, 18 tells us, God is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Ephesians 4, 1 tells us to be patient, bearing with one another in love. After patience is kindness. Sometimes this is called gentleness or goodness, which gets a little confusing because you're like, but wait, those are later farther on in the list. So kindness is a goodness of heart, and we're always seeking to do good. As we grow in the spirit, we become patient, kind, gentle, good. We want to be kind to others and make their way easier. We walk their walk with them and make their burdens lighter. For a believer, people should know us for our kindness, for our ability not to retaliate when wrong, for our willingness to push anger away, for offering peace and grace and forgiveness. Jesus demonstrated kindness when he fed the crowds who had been listening to him, when he called the little children to come to him and he blessed them, when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's kindness. After kindness comes goodness. This is all that's good and true and right. So righteousness is a part of goodness. Righteousness is being right, doing right, conforming in character and conduct to a right standard. But we need to be careful because sometimes when we get too righteous, then we, um, we tend to be exacting and thinking people ought to live just a certain way and do things just the way I do them. And then if we're only practicing righteousness, when we share our beliefs, we can kind of come across as harsh and judgmental. But this is where goodness comes in because then goodness softens that righteous side. Goodness allows us to share our beliefs in a kinder way so that people are more likely to listen and consider what we're saying. Jesus was able to do this. He shared some hard truths with people. I was thinking about the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well who came to talk to him. And when Jesus told her to call, go call your husband, she replied, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. 
when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Okay, that's pretty frank. That's pretty direct. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't mince words. But the woman didn't get mad and leave. She stayed. She stayed and continued her conversation. So I have to think that Jesus' manner and his tone of voice must have conveyed his goodness and his love and his concern for her salvation. Next is faithfulness. When we're faithful, we're honest, we're loyal, we're trustworthy. Lamentations and that favorite hymn of people says, great is your faithfulness, God is faithful. We can count on his word, his unchanging love and grace. Because he is faithful and because of our faith in him, when we live in the spirit, we can be faithful. With the leading of the spirit, we can be truthful in our actions, our words, our businesses, our relationships. Gentleness. When you think about this, you think about gentling an animal, taming an animal. They are tamed, they're brought under control. That's kind of the mental picture that goes with gentleness. So that's what we have to do. We have to tame our sinful nature. It needs to be gotten under control, and we can only do that with help from the Holy Spirit. Humbleness and humility are associated with gentleness. One writer said, humility doesn't ride over people. It doesn't run roughshod over people. Even people who are struggling with, with sin, it teaches, excuse me, it treats them with a kind of meek, gentle character. So we are to be marked with humility. Gentleness is shown in the way we treat others, gently, kindly, with respect. The verses mentioned about Jesus being gentle and humble or lowly of heart exemplify this attribute. Don't think being gentle and meek means you're weak and never speak up. It means knowing your strengths, but submitting them to the spirit to use to love and care for others. James tells us, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. When my daughter Carrie was, when we had Bible memory here, remember Bible memory? When she was in Bible memory, she had to memorize this passage from Philippians 2. And it is one that I really like. This is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the God of the Father. That's the ultimate description of humbling oneself and letting God do the exalting. All right, our last one, self control. It's the power to keep our sin in check. It's mastering ourselves, our thoughts, 
our words, our actions. We need to ask ourselves if what we're doing, thinking, and saying are helpful, constructive, and bringing glory to God. If the answer is no, then we need to exercise self-control and not do them. Without the Spirit's help, we will not be able to exercise control. So those are our fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A whole bouquet of attributes that shows that we're living in the Spirit. So now we know what those are. Now we just need to get busy and start doing them. So to do that, we have to pray. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and our minds and shape us and mold us. Every day, we need to die to self. That's putting that sinful nature to death. And we need to seek to live in the Spirit. We need to keep the example of Jesus fixed in our minds. And if we start to veer off, pull yourselves back. It's going to take practice, but with prayer and Bible study and concentration, it'll get easier. Every day, we should start by saying, all right, ask the Holy Spirit, come into me, help me today, guide me through this day, lead me, let me to exercise these fruits. And then at night, say, okay, here's where I did good, here's where I did bad, and continue to work on it. Because remember, we have a perfect home in heaven waiting for us. We need to make sure our lives are in order so that we can move into that home. First, accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, and then you spend the rest of your life growing in your relationship with him. So in the church where I grew up, every Sunday at the end of the service, there was an invitation. So today, I want to extend that invitation to you. If God has been speaking to you, if God has been calling to you and you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come to the front and there will be some people up here that we will talk with you, we'll pray with you. We can lead you in that sinner's prayer so that you know that you can go to your forever home in heaven. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, Lord. We thank you that he loved us so much, and you loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his lives, to sacrifice himself for us, Lord. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for another. So, Lord, I pray today that you are speaking to those who have not yet accepted you as your Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you speak to their hearts. I Speak to their minds, Lord. Draw them close to you, Lord, and lead them to take the action to accept you. Lord, we want everyone we know and love to be with us in heaven, in our forever home. So, Lord, I pray that blessing on all of us. Lord, I pray for those who accepted you a long time ago. Lord, thank you for their, their faithfulness to you and your faithfulness to us. Continue to help us grow in your love and in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everyone. Go live in the Spirit.